This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tacova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovis.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. This podcast is brought to you by Maine Operation Game Thief, New Hampshire Wildlife Heritage Foundation, and International Wildlife Crime Stoppers. This podcast is brought to you in part by Sovereign Sportsman Solutions. As conservation officers, we know just how important technology is in this day and age. S3 is a cutting-edge and trusted vendor that provides state agencies with licensing, mobile, CRM, marketing, law enforcement, and event management solutions all in one place. They are dedicated to benefiting the resource, so check out the link in the show notes to sign up for their newsletter and get the industry insights, news, and content that can keep you up to date on the tech that helps drive conservation into the future. A Game Warden's children's book, titled A Cowboy in the Woods, is a story of Bobby, a boy who spends the whole summer observing wildlife, writing notes in his notebook, fishing with his dad, and keeping track of all the animals in his neighborhood. While trying to solve a neighborhood mystery, what he discovers is more than just an appreciation for the natural world. The idea for this book came from Wayne Saunders' own childhood experiences growing up and exploring the woods and streams and lakes and ponds of his native New Hampshire. The love of nature instilled in his childhood led him to a career as a conservation officer. Wayne Saunders is a retired lieutenant conservation officer from the New Hampshire Fish and Game Department. Lindsay Webb is a naturalist, wildlife biologist, and environmental educator. Together, they collaborated with wildlife artist Ashley Mares to produce The Cowboy in the Woods, the story of a boy whose love of nature leads him in unexpected directions. Available at wardenswatch.com and Amazon. Listen to the Thin Green Line podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Game wardens John Norris and Wayne Saunders talk about wildlife, the outdoors, law enforcement, environmental subjects mixed with current events and guests that are part of the Thin Green Line. And if you are one of those visual people like me, for $5 a month, you can see the actual podcast on patreon.com. Just search the Thin Green Line podcast on patreon.com and join us. We love our children. We protect them. We guide them. We prepare them for life in the world. With all that we do, from deep in our hearts, we cannot control all things. Life-threatening illnesses and disabilities affect far too many of our children each year. While we cannot change the circumstance, we can make dreams come true. Dreams to provide hope, to provide spiritual healing and strength, to provide moments of happiness and relief in the hardest of times. We can give a glimmer of light and hope in a time of darkness and despair. Join huntofalifetime.org to help make dreams come true, to provide hope for children with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Hunt of a Lifetime is a nonprofit organization fulfilling dreams for hunting and fishing trips to youth 21 and under with life-threatening illnesses and disabilities. Visit huntofalifetime.org to learn how you can make a difference.
please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves game wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, and this is Warden's Watch. Warden's Watch, Episode 63, Part 2, Operation Cody, Todd Vandervert. You guys heard Part 1, and this is such a detailed, descriptive interview about Operation Cody. We had to go into to Part 2, which I, I, I'm, I'm so happy that we can do a Part 2 on an undercover operation, John, because it really does go in depth, and it, and it tells you how bad it is. This operation only ran for a year, had it run a little longer, and Todd, Todd talks about some bumps in the roads he had, but at least he, he tells those kind of bumps in the roads, so you know I, I wouldn't judge everything. He, he exposes a lot of different things. When we have uh, decisions that are made, sometimes we don't agree with them. But in, in this case, uh, it was still a very, very successful operation. He wraps it all together really good. So this is part two. Yeah, this is great. And you know what? This goes to show you that these these in-depth um, you know, poaching operations take so much work that we had to discuss the details very deep and to go into a part two. Mm. Just like when we talked about Operation Bear Conduit, you know, the bear case I had back in California yes. that went like a year and a half. I mean, I noticed when we started to tell that story and share it and I started to relive it, I'm like, Man, there's a lot of moving parts to this little mm. puzzle. This is a big puzzle. This is a 5,000-piece puzzle, not a 200-piece, not a you know? And Operation Cody is one of those. And so I'm glad we got, you know, we got to go in depth, and I'm glad we got to go deeper so we could tell the whole story with this second part. And uh, you guys are going to love it, and we're going to have more of it. Yeah, and it's amazing how deep Todd was able to get with Operation Cody. So enjoy the conclusion, part two, Todd Vandervert, Operation Cody. We, we did get some really hardcore individuals. We got some people in the Yakima area that were, uh, the first transaction we did from them was to buy a big horse sheep. And then we subsequently bought deer and elk from them, eagle feathers, hawk feathers. They're really into, into raptors. They made, although neither one of the people, there was only two at first, then it expanded. A couple more people joined their group. Nobody in the group was Native American, but they they specialize in making Native American type of accessories. They they did, you know, dream catchers and uh, smudge fans and, you know, all kinds of different Native American regalia. And they did it with bear parts, real bear parts, real legal parts, you know, that kind of thing. And, and, mm. and then they would sell them to anybody. I mean, they in that particular case, they were not being sold to Native Americans. They were being sold to everybody but Native Americans. So we did a lot of business with them. They saw, sold us basically everything. I mean, they, they, it was one-stop shopping with them. They, it, if, if we had rhino, they would have sold us rhino. You know, I mean, they, they were into everything. Hard, hardcore meth addicts, all of them, that whole group. So, I mean, the, Operation Cody was extremely effective. By the end of the operation, we came up with over 100 suspects who had committed most of the crimes for felony. Uh, they were the federal felony or state felony. Uh, Washington's statute now, in uh, the statute changed partway through our operation, but the statute now says any unlawful trafficking in wildlife is a felony. And so they, they were serious crimes against about 100 people. And, and the 100 people were not 100 people in Washington. The, the individual I talked about that ran the restaurant, Chinese restaurant, he had us, for example, using him as an example, he had us ship bear parts to New York, to Chicago, to Portland, to somewhere in California, I think San Francisco. And each one of those, as you know, by crossing state lines, putting them in transit, uh, constituted a federal offense. And so either federal agents or state officers or 
in most oh. cases, both would take over the case on their end when we did the takedowns on our end. And, and so as a result, for example, when I ship bare parts to Chicago, the person we ship them to is of interest. And then where they went from there is of interest. And if they can show that Bob bought them and was the receiver of them in Chicago, and then Bob sent and sold parts to Steve, John, and Fred, Steve, John, and Fred are also eligible for, for arrest. Right. So, so that's how we got up to a, a hundred and we got well over a thousand counts of uh, various crimes. Some, some people had racked up quite a, a list of crimes. Others we had on three or four. We had to, one of the things that going into this case that when you have a case that goes for two years that, that you know of is that if you don't continue doing business with these guys, by the time you get into the search warrant aspect of it, you know, the takedown, if the last time you did business with them was eight months or 10 months ago, there's not very many judges are going to give you a search warrant on 10 month old stale information. So we, we at least kept our, you know, one toe in the water with them um, Mm -hmm. until the very end so that we could get fresh information to get search warrants obtained. Cause our goal was not to just arrest the people we did business with, but we wanted to arrest the people who provided the people we did business with. For example, I mean, if, if somebody's selling us elk, we wanted to know where they got the elk from. Right. We had a, an individual that we worked with in Tacoma. He was, I wouldn't call him like a, a member of an organized crime unit. I think he, he, you could comfortably say he was the head of an organized crime group. He was, uh, I think, Cambodian, and he ran a real large cockfighting business. I, I got to see cockfighting for the first time in my life. Um, wow. He uh, had did a lot of uh, marijuana grow and purchases of marijuana, which now is kind of irrelevant. <laughs> he was really, really big time into trafficking in Tyrone. As a matter of fact, he was the single largest wildlife trafficker that I've ever heard identified in our state. Wow. Uh, he would sell dozens and dozens of deer and elk. He got most of the elk from tribal members who he had a connection with a Yakima tribal member that would drive over and provide him with the elk. So he would order, say, five elk. Uh, these people would drive over with five elk in the back of their truck, unload them in his garage. Then he would call his buyers and say, come and get your elk. He wouldn't sell one at a time because it wasn't worth his wasn't worth his time to sell just one at a time. So he preferred uh, sales of two or more elk at a time. I, I didn't think I could fit five elk in a truck, but I did it in my, <laughs> in my pickup one. Um, oh, so man. he, uh, yeah, he was, he was an interesting character. He was the one out of everybody we dealt with. I'll, I'll back up a little bit. Um, when I, when I started doing undercover, you know, family members and a lot of people said, God, isn't that super dangerous? You know, I mean, that's got to be really hazardous. You sure you want to do this? And one of the things I realized right off the bat was it's, in, in my opinion, people might argue with me, but in my opinion, fi- undercover fish and wildlife is, is safer than being a uniform officer. I say on the, on the surface, that doesn't make much sense. But I explain it to people this way. If, if you're walking up a river and there's a guy up there fishing, and you're in uniform, you're a uniform officer, and he looks down the river and sees you walking towards him, and he has a felony warrant for attempted murder. You don't know it. He does. And he sees you walking up, sees the portable radio that you've got on your hip, on your gun belt, and all this, and he realizes that he's probably going to end up in jail because he doesn't have a fishing license, and when the officer runs him, they find out he's wanted for attempted murder, and there he goes. Mm -hmm. So the guy has a couple choices. One is to you know, stand his ground and take it like a man, just, you know, see what happens. Another one is to run, take off, and hopefully you can get away from the officer and not get caught. And the third one is to fight. Uh, Use the element of surprise to your advantage. The officer doesn't know you're wanted, doesn't know you're a criminal. Um, So they figure, okay, I'll, I'll wait for the earliest opportunity to attack this officer and get away. The same individual is fishing on the river and we go up in undercover capacity. I mean, by the time I was done with SIU, I had hair well beyond my shoulders and a full beard. So they see me walking up the river to them. And the same guy that, you know, would run or fight because he's got a felony warrant would offer you a beer and sit there and and talk to you forever. So the bad guys, obviously the whole purpose of undercover, one of the things you have to do is gain their trust. You know, if they don't trust you, they're not going to do 
illegal business with you. So the bad guys in in uh, these cases, in these undercover contact, as long as they don't figure out who you are, you're great. I mean, mm. you're, you they consider you at least a trusted business partner, if not a friend. Right. And so, uh, you know, you can spend all day with seriously bad guys. And, and, and as I said, as long as they don't find out who you are with you when you're with them, you're great. This individual was extremely careful. He interviewed us before he did business with us. He separated us to talk to us uh, individually, see if we both had the same answer. It, he was by far the most dangerous guy, in my opinion, uh, that we dealt with on the entire operation. He had guys that I, I don't I don't know that they worked for him essentially, but they were under his control. He had guys that he called his soldiers, and they were the ones that were you know, right under him. They were the ones that did his trusted dirty work. And then below that, he had people that he called his monkeys. And his monkeys were, they were all Vietnamese or Cambodian. I can't remember which. They, they were all from the same mm-hmm. uh, country. And the monkeys were just laborers. You know, if he, for example, when I, when I went in to buy elk or when we went in to buy elk, my partner and I, he would have his monkeys load up the back of the truck. He'd say, you know, give them three elk and two deer and load them up. And, uh, you know, we, we did an interview with him, which was rather um, <laughs> trying. And, uh, you know, we, we both afterwards thought, I wonder if we'd failed the interview, whether we would have left wrapped up in a tarp. Right. So, yeah, we were, we were concerned about him. Uh, we had video camera on every transaction we did. We at least had one camera running on every single second of every transaction we did. So we knew no matter what, there's a video record of what was said, what was done. No, back up. Sorry. And not what was said, because Washington is a two-party consent state, which means you can't record without their permission. So we couldn't record audio, but we had but video of every minute of every transaction. Mm-hmm. And this particular guy, because of his uh, other activities, um, we also put a, a remote camera on his place to to do full-time surveillance on his place. It recorded 24 hours a day. Wow. And so we'd literally have to manually go back through it and see see what had occurred. So, so we had a lot of, had a ton of information on him, who the other people that he dealt with were, et cetera. And I guess at this point, I'll wrap up that operation by saying we worked it. As I said at the beginning, we were supposed to be allowed to go two years. We worked it one hunting season, and then we got into uh, summertime, early, real early fall, um, summer. And Officer Marsad and I, at that time, well, at that time, she was acting detective Marsad at that time. We were on we were on a case on the east side of the state when we found out that they were having a meeting in the Olympia office about the future of Operation Cody, how long it would be allowed to go, et cetera, et cetera. I thought it was a little telling that they had a meeting with the U.S. Attorney's Office, the feds, and our state guys, and didn't invite the two people that were running, you know, actually run the case. It was then on that day that we learned that they were going to shut it down early. They were going to shut us down on September 18th. And so we, we, we were, I was pissed primarily because for, for one example, the guy that was supposed to get us a truckload of starter plants and all the grow stuff, we had it all lined up to do. That was going to be after September 18th. And we couldn't get him to speed it up because he was in California at the time. Right. So we lost that altogether and that just went out the window because our agency apparently was dead set on doing it on the 18th and and uh the u.s attorney's office and and dea i think had tried to convince them to continue on until at least we got that case done but it wasn't to be so on september 18th uh officer marstad and i set up a all of our case reports, our computers and everything on a conference table in an office, um, Fish and Wildlife office. And we had split up the cases that we had 50-50. Jennifer had half of the cases. I had the other half of the cases. And we had given our phone numbers names to the officers that were actually doing the search warrant. We had search warrants going all across the U.S., uh, a lot in Washington. 
So we told each of the search teams for this particular case, call Officer Marstad, for this part of it, call me. Um, And everything was going great. We had search warrants that were going to be served early in the morning to search warrants that would be served later in the evening based on when we thought the best opportunity to catch them at home would be. Uh, We wanted to catch the individuals while they were at home, uh, in some cases so that we could physically arrest them, and in most cases because we wanted to interview them. We had hoped at the beginning of this thing, like I said earlier, not just to get the people that were doing it, but the people who were supplying it. You know, I mean, right. for example, the individual that was selling dozens and dozens of elk and deer, we wanted to know where he was getting them and, and who else was buying from them. Right. So on September 18th, we're sitting in our little conference table answering questions from the field. Everything was going really well. People were coming up with good evidence and all that. And then that really good informant I told you about, the guy that I had had as an informant on the Killamall Boys case, he called me out of the blue. I hadn't heard from him in quite a while. He's a, he's a friend of mine now. We get along real well. Yep. He called me and, and said, uh, "Are you? do you have anything to do with this big statewide bus that's going on? And I go, what statewide bus? And he goes, oh, it's all over the news. It's on, it's on the internet that you guys are hitting all these commercial businesses for wildlife trafficking crimes all across the state of Washington right now. Logged on the computer, uh, got on to, I think it was Como for one of the local news news stations. And right off the bat, here's our deputy chief in uniform explaining what we're doing, that we're doing serving warrants now, you know, and da da da. To say that's unprecedented doesn't even say enough. Um, A little premature. Whether... Yeah. I mean, I have never, ever in my career, not only have I never heard of it, but I've never talked to anybody that's heard of a time where the administration of a law enforcement agency announces that we're serving search warrants before we've served them, before we've served all of them. And so it it was absolutely stunning to me, just blew me away. And so we then started calling everybody that hadn't done a search warrant and telling them that there was a possibility that their target might know that they're coming. So obviously when that's the case, you have to be super careful. Right. Uh, Officer safety is to a yeah, different level. And your, your, chance, your chances of finding evidence go down significantly too. Yes. That would have to be an idiot to sit on the evidence when they know you're coming. Right. You know, like I said, whether that endangered any of our people or not is entirely up to who you ask. Mm-hmm. Uh, I wasn't on the search warrants. I, I, I didn't have any part of that other than directing them by phone. But some of the individuals, some of our officers that served search warrants felt that that jeopardized their safety. Some didn't. I think that was largely based on what their opinion of the individuals involved were, the, the deputy chief or myself. So it, it is what it is. It happened. It's, it's old news now. Right. Uh, I, I was pretty, I wasn't pretty upset. I was livid about it at the time. But there's nothing I could do uh, other than to tell officers to be safe, you know, be extra vigilant when you serve these warrants. At the end of the day, uh, the warrants, all of them, uh, all the ones in Washington and all the contacts people made in other jurisdictions all went perfectly. Nobody was hurt. Nobody ran. Nobody did anything foolishly. The only one that was kind of amusing was the individual that ran the restaurant in uh, Walla Walla that I told you about. He was in California, uh, I think, setting up grow operations down in California at the time. And he was staying at some guy's house in the L.A. area. And the feds tracked his cell phone to this house. They went to serve a warrant on him, take a cell phone and so forth and and arrest him. He came walking out of the back of the house. They were on one side of a pool in the backyard and he was on the other side. And He saw him and took his phone and threw it in the pool. <laughs> so he thought he would destroy the evidence because he he did all of his business by texting, uh-huh. and and he he decided that you know throwing into the pool would protect him. It what it did is added a little more jail time to his sentence because that's an additional crime, destroying and uh, you know destruction of evidence. Yeah, and uh, and they recovered all the data from his phone anyway. Wow. <laughs> so uh, in the end, it it. You know, we could have done significantly better, in, in my opinion, had we been allowed to go two hunting seasons instead of one, and had we been allowed to go a little bit longer, you know, finish out the two years we had been told, I, I think we would have done, you know, we were we were 
growing exponentially every month. We were, you know, the word was getting out that we're trustworthy, we're good people, all this kind of stuff. And so we were getting more and more business every week. And uh, I, th I think it would have been, it, it turned out to be an outstanding operation in my opinion, but, but I think it would have been even far better had we been allowed to continue. But that too is, is uh, irrelevant now. It is what it is. And we got what we got. So still, like you said, so that was a huge success and everything went smooth even after the bump in the road, which is outstanding to hear that, 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 that it sounds like, uh, was anybody tipped off? Did anybody, that's what I'm curious. Did anybody know they were coming? So they met him at the door and said, come on in or uh, were they, they you, you know, know? Not, not that I can recall off the top of my head. It's I don't kind of hard to flush said. a deer down the toilet. So. Yeah, it is. Um, it, it really <laughs> fucking. But <laughs> one of the individuals I told you we we bought a lot of deer and elk from. That the first elk we bought from this guy was in his bathtub. So uh, he he had killed an elk, put it in a garbage bag, and filled his bathtub full of ice to keep it cold until we could get there. So I, I, I've taken deer out of bathtubs before, but that was my first elk out of a bathtub. Oh my goodness. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so he at least had it close to the toilet if you wanted to try and flush the yeah. uh, <laughs> I'm glad I said that now <laughs> and, and the guy that had the cock fights I mean that's when you bring that into it I just think of uh, pretty seedy people that do cock fighting you know that's that's certainly illegal that's on the edge and the type of people that are involved with that yeah they're just like you described uh, their monkeys do the work this uh, i just I, I can picture that going into uh, a cambodian layout with people betting on i mean and this betting going on on these cockfights and i'm sure he's running that too so there's some money oh, involved guaranteed. i mean yeah that 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 sounded like a a, a good uh, grab and in fact i can buy get five or six elk oh my goodness i mean he 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 had a pipeline uh, yeah so. oh yeah it, yeah the cockfight thing was funny because uh but the first time we went into his backyard with him, he had all these little cages with chickens in them. And, and like, hey, you raise chickens. Oh, I don't cocks. Okay, what's the deal? Oh, the <laughs> cockfight. And I can't remember the dollar figure, but to get in the door on one of those things, like 500 bucks or a thousand bucks or something. I mean, it, it was big money to get in the door and he ran them. And so he invited us to, to one and said, you know, you guys can come with me as my guests. And we kicked it around a little bit, thought that might not be the best idea for us to go to the cockfight. So we saw it. So I, I saw him do it in the backyard of his house one time, but, but um, we never went to one of the cockfights because we kind of thought we might stand out like a sore thumb. Oh, uh, I, I, I bet you would have. <laughs> I bet you would have. <laughs> oh, that, that's, that, that's a great operation. Um, and and you, you wrote the book about Operation Cody. So people that really want to get into it more, I just, I, I read the reviews on Amazon, Todd, they're outstanding. You're, you're doing, you're putting out that information and you're educating people around the country and around the world what is going on. I, I, che I keep telling uh, people that, you know, it's estimated we catch 1% of illegal wildlife activity, uh, 1%. And that's just, it's insane that we're only catching 1%. And, and I, I'd like to think we could do better. Types of these operations certainly uh, are, are effective and you, you proved it within a year you had all these incredible cases you had all these connections you know who knows what two years would have brought but you made a big dent in it uh, so uh, very yeah very I mean the, the book Operation Cody it, it was funny because I, I had some people that were critical of me writing the book because they said hey you're profiting on a you know undercover case you work for the state and my first response was, if you think I'm profiting, you don't know anything about writing books. <laughs> it's kind of like um, podcasting. But, <laughs> yeah, I suppose. Um, but um, I, I wrote the book, obviously not to make money, because if I did so to make money, I failed. Mm. Uh, I wrote the book for two reasons. One was I wanted the people in the state of Washington to realize what was going on in their own agency. And just to educate the people, you know, the outdoors men from, from Washington. And the second and more important reason I wrote the book was to educate people from other jurisdictions on what's going on. I, you had a long career in wildlife. How many uh, wildlife trafficking cases for deer or elk meat have you made? Right. Zero. 
Okay. That's, yeah. that's the answer from most people. Mm -hmm. uh, it, as far as I know, prior to this operation, I think there've been one case and maybe two, but I think one case in Washington's history of trafficking and in, in meat, uh, deer and elk. When we started this, um, I didn't expect at all that we would be dealing in meat. I, I just thought, no, there's, there's no way it's, it's a market that doesn't really exist. Uh, it's not high enough dollar to, to get people interested. Uh, they're better off staying with eagles, raptors, uh, bear gall bladder and claws and stuff like that. But I didn't expect the meat aspect and it was enormous. Uh, so the reason that came up uh, or the reason I wanted to focus on the meat part in the book is because I think an awful lot of jurisdictions across North America think what I did before the case, uh, both officer Marstad and I both were of the opinion that that was, if it was occurring, it was very, very rare. And we found out it is not at all rare. Restaurants were dealing in it. It wasn't just uh, Chinese restaurants. We had other restaurants that were dealing in it. It was very commonplace. And so that was, that was a really important reason for me to write that book was to educate officers, game wardens from other jurisdictions that take a look at this possibility that, that don't assume that because nobody's ever made a case on it, that it's not occurring. Most of the, most of the wildlife trafficking cases we dealt with, they had a, a fairly small circle. I mean, they, they weren't selling to 10 restaurants. They were selling to one or two. Uh, and they didn't expand much because it's stupid. Right. So uh, there are cases that, I, I was a uniform officer for a long time, and I'd like to think that I was a pretty good uniform officer, but I'd never made a trafficking case. And, and the reason is I'd made a lot of deer and elk cases. I mean, hundreds and hundreds of deer and elk cases, but you never even think to ask why. You, you never think to ask why a guy killed an elk close season or why a guy's got three deer instead of the one he's legally allowed to have. It just didn't dawn on me as a uniform officer that this might be a commercial operation. It, 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 naive of me, I guess. But I think a lot of us are naive uh, yeah. when it comes to that. So that, that was a... And I think you hit it at the beginning of the podcast when you talked about your very first undercover case. Because most of the uniform officers would have got that information that this guy had bear, mountain lions, bobcats in his freezer, the dogmen there. And we would have taken that information. We would have wrote a search warrant. We'd executed the search warrant. We wouldn't have made a great case, a great case. But that's where it would have ended, right mm -hmm. there. Exactly. And we would have stopped one yeah. individual, not ten individuals. Uh, yep. And yeah. Yep. And and, and you and and on top of that, having it on video, even without audio, is mm. enormously helpful. I mean, you go to. The first step, of course, is your, your prosecutor in the jurisdiction that you're charging. Uh, it makes their job a hell of a lot easier if you can watch it on a video exactly what the officer is describing, the money changing hands, you know, the whole thing. Secondly, on the vast majority of our contacts, probably 95% of our contacts, there was two of us there. So we had two officers. We had at least one camera, usually two, sometimes three cameras running all the time so we had two of us and cameras backing up everything we said it, it it made i mean even if we were just getting a smaller case you know like you said a, a, a guy that kills one elk close season or something like that that kind of evidence the video evidence and two officers is pretty tough to defeat for a defense attorney so uh we had a we had a good system it worked out really well and i and i think I, i'm not trying to tell other jurisdictions, how to run their business or to say that you, you definitely have this going on in your jurisdiction. I just want people to think about it. I just want officers to keep in the back of their mind, why is this guy a habitual poacher? I mean, how many deer or how many elk can you eat? And certainly we've had other officers, uh, the Operation North Shore in Ohio with uh, uh, Captain Ron Aulis was on. And he, you know, they had a huge uh, search warrant execution based on the same stuff. A lot of deer meat that was being uh, turned into snack sticks and then sold yeah. out of a, a, at a factory and had all these connections. And he was 
killing deer mainly for the antlers, but he was turning all that meat into snack sticks and profiting on it. And then yeah. that just rolled into another case, into another case, into another, you know, like you said, it made that connection. It just kept getting bigger, 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 where they were executing search warrants statewide. Uh, so you, you are, I, I, I think you're right. I think we don't understand the, the, the larger aspect as game wardens we don't think beyond that first case and some of it is because we don't have the resources to go beyond that first case uh we could could make a good case and i'll tell you the excitement if you gave me all that information i'd want to make that case that it's hard for me to hand on something else and let's kick this can down the road and see if we can get some bigger people when i when i've got a a good case in my hand so that that's that's the struggle i would have (laughs) the you know, I mean, there's there's more than one way to skin a cat. Uh, mm-hmm. So, the, the if if a jurisdiction doesn't have undercover officers available or doesn't have any at all, uh, or your administration is opposed to it, the other option, of course, is when you catch that guy that's killed five deer in one season, and you get him to admit that he's selling them to some place, keeping that in mind and making that part of the interview of the guy. You get someone that says that, that yeah, that I've, I've sold deer or I've sold elk or I've sold bear gallbladder. You don't have to do an undercover. You can have that guy go back and do the sale for you, um, have a controlled sale or controlled buy. So it doesn't necessarily have to involve undercover officers. You can use the same person that's already in it to do it for you. The, the, the one thing I, I said at the beginning of Operation Cody at the beginning of our discussion today that we were asked to include uh, sturgeon caviar. Mm. And, and I just thought there is absolutely no way this is, you know, out of all the groups of people that I've worked undercover, the most cautious were the Russians. Um, they, they, they really are an untrusting group of people when it comes to non-Russians, you know, in, in organized crime, I'm not talking about in general. It, it wasn't too long into the operation. I'd say maybe four or five months into the operation that Uh, We had a confidential secretary in the uh, Olympia office who received a a phone call, a poaching call from from a Russian. And this Russian individual said that he he had information about somebody that was unlawfully buying sturgeon caviar or sturgeon eggs. And so she she called me and, and told me about it. I decided to call the guy myself. Uh, you know, not telling him I'm undercover and that kind of stuff. I just called him as an officer mm-hmm. and I interviewed this guy over the phone, the reporting party. And I'll never forget what he said. I mean, he, he had run into a guy. He was at a, at a Russian store, an Eastern European store in the Seattle area buying food. And he ran into this guy who was, uh, Oh, he was looking at caviar. The reporting party was looking at a can of caviar and this guy saw him doing it and said, Oh, you, you like caviar? Yes. Well, here, you can call me anytime you, you want it. Um, you know, I only deal with Russians and, you know, so, so call me and I'll get you a better price on caviar. I said, okay. So the guy ended up calling our office. I spoke to the guy. He only had a phone number. didn't have a name. He, he, the guy had written down his phone number and said, call me if you want to, if you want some caviar. And he's, and the guy warned me, he'll only talk to Russians. I mean, he, he won't deal with anybody that's a Russian. Well, we don't, we don't have a Russian officer in our agency. Mm-hmm. And so I started calling all around. I called Seattle PD. I called King County, called the larger agencies looking for a Russian officer, a Russian speaking officer. I couldn't find one, but I, I, I talked to somebody with Seattle PD who had, who was married to a federal agent with a federal agency that I won't mention. And she had a, a Russian informant working for her that was willing to do basically anything. Mm. And so we met with this informant and he called the, the main suspect, Igor, and, and he had a conversation with him about caviar uh, over the phone. Igor agreed to sell him caviar, uh, to sell caviar. But the guy said, it's not for me, it's for a friend of mine, but he is an American. He doesn't speak Russian. And so Igor at that time said, well, I, I speak English also. So he just handed me the phone and I spoke in English to the guy. Uh, we set up a meeting and uh, I bought a very large amount of caviar over and over and over from him. The, the first 
thing, the first purchase I made from him of, of uh, sturgeon caviar, he gave me the caviar and I said something about, uh, is this white or green sturgeon? The two species that we have in Washington and one you can fish for, one you can't. And he said, no, it's American sturgeon. Well, American sturgeon is a nickname for paddlefish. Paddlefish don't exist in Washington. Our statute in Washington says uh, the definition of wildlife is anything that exists in the wild in Washington. We don't have paddlefish, so it's really not in our jurisdiction whatsoever. We don't have any authority over, over paddlefish. So the same federal agent that I told you about that I had spent the night with him after a bear gall case, the same guy, I, I called him and asked him, you know, if he was interested in this case. It, you know, I, I got this guy that is selling me paddlefish caviar. And he goes, you know where it's from? And I said, yeah, Oklahoma. So he said, you know, he asked the guy's name and I told him. And as I said, I'm kind of a smart aleck at times. Uh, I play <laughs> practical jokes on people a lot. So I, I had a a real difficulty convincing him that the name I was giving him was legitimate because I, I told him the guy's name that I was working and, and he said, no way. Who told you that? You know, you're not supposed to go around saying that, you know, and he was just drilling me about how, how do you, who, who in our agency told you this guy's name? And I told him, I said, Hey, the guy was sitting in my truck. I bought caviar from him. Here it is. You know? And he said, are you serious? And I said, yeah. And he said, we've been working that guy for quite a while with Oklahoma. Turns out, Carlos, who, who <laughs> you know well, yeah. Uh, Carlos was the guy that had been working him on the on the uh, Carlos Gomez with Oklahoma uh, Fish and Wildlife was the guy that had been working the case with the feds in Oklahoma, and they had actually tracked uh, the vehicle uh, from Oklahoma to Washington to you know, West Side Puget Sound, and uh, but. But there was not a crime if they were not doing it for commercial purposes, if they weren't selling it. It's not illegal to take the roe out of paddlefish. It's just illegal to sell it. Hmm. And so they couldn't make a case on selling it. They said I, I, we, they knew that he was coming to Washington and distributing it to people, but they couldn't say for sure that money was exchanging hands. And as I said, it's kind of a hard group to break into. Yeah. So, you know, I, I told him, yeah, money exchange hands. I got it on video. We got the guy. And that's how that ended up uh, working out. It, it was a coordinated effort between U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Oklahoma, U.S. Fish and Wildlife in Washington, Oklahoma State, and Washington State all coordinated together. During Operation Cody, Carlos Gomez called me and said he had an individual that was selling whitetail antlers attached to the skull, which by Oklahoma law is illegal. And he said, uh, can, can I ask you to see if you can make contact with the guy and if he'd be willing to sell to you? And I said, sure. So <laughs> I did, and he did. And we made that case also, and Carlos was real happy about that one. So you know, that goes back to what I said about the conferences where you meet investigators. Yes. I mean, it's really nice to be able to say, hey, I, I know this guy. I can talk to him. Uh, I had... In my career, I did two officer exchanges. One was to New Zealand and one was to Oklahoma. I'm not trashing Oklahoma at all, but New Zealand's a hell of a lot better. Um, so I, I worked with New Zealand officers for a couple of weeks and I worked with the Oklahoma guys, I think, for a week. I had an absolute blast in Oklahoma, the nicest guys you've ever met. And Carlos was one of them. And so we ended up working together on, on Operation Cody on a couple of different cases, which was interesting. So. Yeah, no, which Carlos brought me to you as well, Todd. Uh, I certainly had heard about you prior to, but when we talked about Operation Cody during his podcast, uh, certainly uh, I'm like, I got to reach out to Todd like right, right away. And that's, yeah. that's what brought us. Carlos brought us together, which is really awesome uh, to get this story out about Operation Cody to, to get people so they can buy the book, read the book. Uh, very, very, very cool to get the more detailed information podcasts are one thing but uh when you read a book you get the whole enchilada oh yeah <laughs> um books books brings up my next pitch and that is I, I since operation cody had written six fiction books about game wardens and uh the name of the series is wildlife justice series and uh where you can just get on amazon and search my name but the Wildlife Justice series is a series of six books, all using the 
the same base characters, the same base of, of game wardens, uh, primarily uh, a, the lead officer in it is a, a woman named Lisa Bennington. And, uh, and, and they're similar in Operation Cody and as to my intent. If, if anybody reads one of the books, they'll see right away that part of what I do is to educate people on how game wardens work, uh, how we go about putting a case together, how difficult they are to put a case together the obstacles to putting a case together. And, and so I, each book, I kind of profile a different segment of our jobs because I've always said that people, even hunters and fishermen, don't fully understand what we do. Uh, they, you know, they, I, I think a lot of people think that we drive around the woods and, and we watch a guy shoot a deer and bring it out in the back of his truck and we rest them. As you know, it's very rare to actually witness a violation like that. It's the vast majority of our success comes from uh, information. And, and the only way to get information is to treat people with respect. Yes. And uh, that leads me into another case that I had. It was my largest case I ever had as a uniform officer. I had 26 bull elk killed in Washington in a two year period. And these were enormous bulls. We had such a, a large number of bulls shot and wasted that they shut down the permit drawings for that entire unit because we lost so many bolts. Wow. Um, the, the same thing was occurring in Oregon at the same time. So they were having this, the same thing. They're finding a lot of bulls that have been shot and the antlers were cut off and the body just sitting there rotting. So for two years, I was running around gathering shell casings, getting bullets out of the carcasses. I was making foot impressions of the, of the footprint. I did tire impressions plaster tire impression. I, I had a ton of physical evidence. I mean, I, I had everything a person would need to put together a case that nobody could wiggle out of, except for the suspect. I had no idea who did it. Mm. Uh, we had fingerprints, but fingerprints didn't come back to anybody. So the, the one thing that I had was a somewhat vague description of the vehicle. It was a uh, I think it was white, a white Ford pickup, and it had a bunch of stickers on the back window. And, and the driver was described to me uh, as short, uh, five, four, five, five, uh, with a goatee. And, uh, and that's all I had. And I, I went around finding these carcasses and having them turned into me. Finally, one day, a uh, archery hunter had been up scouting for uh, the upcoming archery season at the end of August, he was scouting the season open in September and he got to a particular forest service gate and the gate had been cut open, was, was open. And he thought that was kind of weird. And he kept hearing a chainsaw running inside that gate area. So he went in, explored, found, found the side road. The guy was cutting firewood on and he said, okay, I don't know why a guy would, break a gate to come in and get firewood, but whatever. So he walked on past him, looked for help. An uh, hour later, when he walked back, the truck was gone. And what struck him was the wood that the guy had been cutting was just rolled off into the ditch. It, it, he didn't take it. Well, why would a guy cut it and not take it? So he thought, oh, he, he wasn't cutting firewood. He was cutting a log out of the way of the road. And he went up, up the road further, and here's this enormous elk dead with the antlers missing. So he had just missed the guy. Mm. So he described the vehicle to me. Then later, another citizen had run into the same vehicle in an area where he backtracked the guy's tracks to another carcass. So, so that's all I had is a description of the person and a description of the vehicle. And for two years, I tried to find him. I mean, I put up cameras. I had volunteers to sit on roads looking for the, the guy or the vehicle. Nothing. I, I came up with absolutely nothing. The case came together because I went down to the Snake River and was checking fishermen. And in Washington, if you're fishing for steelhead, um, you, you had to pinch your barbs down, have a barbless hook. And so I went down. There was only one guy in this one particular spot fishing. And, and I asked him to reel his, his gear in. And he asked me why. Was I going to check his hook? And I said, yep. And he goes, it's barbed. And I said, well, okay, you know, it's illegal to have a barb. And he said, yeah, I just figured I'd do it till I got caught. And I said, well, well why? And he said, well, I, I think it's a bullshit law. And I just told myself I was going to do it till I got caught. I guess I'm caught. So I got his information. I went up to my truck. I ran him. He was a convicted felon, had quite a 
quite a criminal history. And I went back, gave him his fishing license and said, don't do it again. See you later. He followed me up to my truck. And at the truck, he said, I don't get it. How come I'm not getting a ticket? And I said, well, the main reason is almost everybody lies to me on every contact. And you're, <laughs> you told me the truth. I mean, from the start, you told me the truth. Yes. So I said, uh, if, if I run into you again and you have a barbed hook, yeah, it, you get paper. But on this, you know, I, I appreciate honesty and I'm going to reward it. So he asked me if I had a business card and I gave him a business card. Um, he told me he was going to call me. A couple of days later, he did. And he said, uh, do you want to know who's killing all the elk in the Blue Mountains? And I said, I'd, I'd love to know. Absolutely. So he gave me the name of a guy who was a mortgage banker and said, uh, he's got one of the elk. I don't think he pulled the trigger on it, but um, he's got one of them in his garage. And I said, okay. So we uh, got that out from that individual. And one of the few times in my life, I told somebody to get a lawyer. I, we arrested that guy for the elk that he had in possession. And I said, call a lawyer, have your lawyer call me and we'll sit down and talk. So, and that's how it rolled into a much larger case because people started to roll on each other as if you'd had a million times. Had I given that guy a ticket for a barbed hook, Mm. Uh, I wouldn't have made, I don't know if I ever would have made the case, but I sure wouldn't have made it then. Right. And so I've told a lot of our newer officers about that and said, you know, that when you get into an area, especially if it's a small county or small town, uh, like the county I was in was probably 2,500 people, 2,800 people in the entire county. And I said, if you, if you treat people with respect, whether they're bad guys or good guys, if you just treat them with respect, and honesty and and uh like it, treat them like you would want to be treated if you were in their shoes uh, you will find it pays tenfold well, it, it's a lot for one thing it's a lot harder to get really angry angry or hostile with somebody that you like obviously it happens i mean domestic violence but uh it's it, it's harder to you know, resist an officer or lie to him or anything like that if, if you had a good relationship with him in the past. And so that's how that case came together. I didn't have any history with the guy, but I treated him fairly. I mean, one of the first things he said to me when he, when he came up to my truck is, no cop has ever given me a break. What's this about? What are you doing? Uh, <laughs> he, he just couldn't understand why he wasn't getting a ticket. Yeah. And so, yeah, that, that's that story. Yeah. And that's a great story for sure. Uh, it's the smallest things that break the biggest cases, and the, you, the, what a great example of that. Going from a yeah. you know a barb hook that wasn't pinched to being able to solve uh, your biggest case and devastating a population, and that's what we we talk about that a lot. That wildlife isn't like your normal stuff. You kill something like that, and it affects the whole herd. It affects it for the time frame. You know, you kill a, a, a doe. You're talking, she's probably got, you know, she's probably has twins or potential to have twin fawns in the spring. So there's three deer potentially you killed illegal. So it, it, you know, it's just, it, it rotates and it takes the, the wildlife time to replenish their numbers. So poaching has a huge impact. Uh, and, Absolutely. And, and cases like we've talked about today, Todd, have have, have a huge impact too. So I, yeah. I, I Thank you. Thank you for your service. Thank you for your service to the resources of Washington State. Thank you for what you did because those had far-reaching. Uh, we talk about reaching out to Oklahoma, meeting you know Carlos down there with the paddlefish. Uh, definitely had far-reaching things. Chicago uh, with the gallbladders, making all those connections. Uh, yeah, that was that was a great case, definitely. And everybody should uh, pick up the book Operation Cody by Todd Vandervert, uh, Washington State game warden. Hey, I tell everybody this is your podcast as much as my podcast. It's a Game Warden podcast. So anything in conclusion? Oh, no, no. You had sent me a, uh, you know, an outline of potential questions. And one of them was, uh, I don't remember how you titled it, but like humorous wildlife stories. And yeah. so I, I, I called a guy last night to confirm that I've got the story right. And I confirmed <laughs> it. So 20 years ago, probably, I was in Dayton in that small county. And somebody had shot a poached a sow bear and left a cub. The cub went up a tree and wouldn't come down. And somebody heard the shot, found the, the dead sow, saw this cub up a tree. So I, 
I was called there. I, I, I don't remember if I darted the cub. I assume I did. I darted the cub, put him in a, the only thing I had to transport a bear cub in was my dog's kennel, uh, you know, porta kennel. By the way, my dog wasn't too happy about that. <laughs> but um, I, I had this cub that was probably 25, 30 pounds, you know, I put him in the dog kennel and the, the people that had reported it had already called all over the state of Washington trying to find a rehab center that would take a, a bear cub. And, you know, they're not real popular. Um, so he had difficulty finding somebody, except they found one on the west side of the state. I was on the far east side of the state. So uh, he, he told me, I, I found this rehabilitation place that will take it. And, you know, if you can get it over there, they're, they're willing to raise it. So I'm like, great. So I was building an airplane at the time um, in my garage and uh, I needed to get some parts and the parts were in Oregon, uh, Portland area, Troutdale. And so I, I planned on making a trip over there anyway. Well, in order to get to Troutdale, Oregon from where I was going, I had to go right by, oh, probably half an hour away on the highway, half an hour away from Shelton, Washington, which is one of the areas I was stationed before. And that was close to where the wildlife rehabilitator was. So my plan was to meet up with one of our officers in Shelton, Matt Nixon, transfer the bear cub to him. He could take the rehabber. So I take the bear and my dog's kennel. I put in a bowl of dog food and some water, put in the back of my truck. I have a canopy on my truck. I throw it in the truck. I'm ready to go. And as one of our other officers, this is in my personal private truck. It's obvious I'm not going to get airplane parts in my work truck. Mm-hmm. So I've got this bear cub in the back of my truck. One of, one of uh, my neighboring officers called and said, hey, he's going to go buy a truck that was right up on the Canadian border, which is a long ways out of my way. But he said, hey, can you take me over to Seattle? One of our other guys is going to pick me up in Seattle. He's going to drive me up to the border. Sure. So I've got this officer off duty, me off duty, and a bear cub in the back of their truck. We drive over to the Seattle area. He calls the officer that's supposed to give him a ride. The officer says, hey, I can't do it. I got called on something else. So my friend, you know, Mike looks over at me and says, hey, can you drive me up to Blaine, which is on the, on the border of U.S. and Canada? I'm like, well, that's not really on my way. And he said, well, I'd really appreciate it. I don't know how, how else I'm going to get home. I'm buying this pickup truck. <laughs> So I said, all right, good. So I drive up to Blaine with him. Um, we pull up to the customs building. They have the duty-free store and all that. I'm parked in the parking lot. And this guy is supposed to bring the, the car or the truck that he's buying down so he can look at it. And I open the back of the canopy to check on this little bear cup. And I open the canopy. I drop the tailgate. And I put my face down to look in the cage. And I say, are you okay? And he reaches down with one of his paws, gets a big pile of his feces and throws it through the, the screen on the front of the dog cage and it goes in my mouth. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, so I wasn't real happy. And so I backed up and spitting out bear poop out of my mouth. And it's all over my shirt. And so I leaned in and I yelled at him and I said, you know, something you pissed me off or something like that. And he did it a second time. Uh, he, he threw in my face the second time. So I, uh, I opted not to shoot him in the parking lot of the customs <laughs> office. <laughs> so I, uh, I closed the canopy. Mike got his truck and I turned around to drive south to get airplane parts. By now I realize I'm too late. Uh, by the time I get no. to Portland, it's going to be too late. So I'm going to have to get a motel someplace. So I called Matt Nixon, one of our officers, he was sergeant with us. And I said, hey, I'm, I'm still coming. I'm running really late, but I'm still coming. I still have this bear cup. And he goes, great. So by then, I'm not a real fan of this bear cup. <laughs> <time I'm making. laughs> so, so we get down to Shelton, meet him at the office. Um, I reach in, put him on a catch pole and pull him out of the truck. And we're going to transfer him to the cage in the back of Matt. Matt's truck so he can take him into the rehabber. And as soon as he hits the ground, he runs over and bites Matt, uh, Matt on the ankle and bit right through his boot. <laughs> so so he, uh, through all that, he still came out okay. And he was rehabbed and lived happily ever after, I guess. But um, that was one of the more entertaining dealing with wildlife that I ever had. Oh, yeah, I've never had that. I, I put a bear cub and a dog have a heart once to transport them, and then I tried to carry it across the field to let it loose on the other side. And 
Yeah, you can't do that. He was pretty active, banging back and forth to the point where, you know, I'd set it down, <laughs> I'd walk a foot or two, and I, it would vibrate out of my hands. So I let yeah. him let him go in the middle of the field, basically, and he ran off. But, uh, yeah, bear cubs are, yeah, I never had one throw poop at me. I'm pretty happy about that. <laughs> but I wish I had heard that as a younger officer. That way I wouldn't have put myself in that position. Because I'm like, how many times did I look in a, cr- in a crate uh, that I had a bear cub or something? So, uh, well, yeah. the, the, just, just being me, I didn't tell any of our officers about that <laughs> <laughs> for, for two reasons. One, cause I, I was an idiot for doing that. And secondly, I, I thought maybe they'll learn someday. Oh, too funny. Oh, that's great. Well, th- thanks for sharing that Todd. And thanks for sharing all your You're stories welcome. and, uh, thanks for writing the books too. That that's, uh, the, the more game warden stories are out there, the more we educate the people what we do. And, and by every state, we do something a little different. You know, New Hampshire fishing game is pretty heavy into search and rescue. We have the White Mountains. We have a lot of hikers. Uh, we, we do a lot of search and rescue missions uh, comparatively to others that don't have that responsibility or have it on, on, a, on a lighter basis. So it, it's very interesting to see what how the other parts of the country operate. And as well as, uh, you know, just getting connected and finding how much we have in common, too. Yeah, Thanks again. Absolutely. Please join me, Game Warden Wayne Saunders, and other Game Wardens on our adventures, protecting wildlife, saving lives, and having fun, all while serving the public and the natural resources of our planet. Listen to the tales and experiences of those who work in the outdoors while being entertained with stories about encounters with poachers, wildlife investigation, murder investigation, near-death experiences, search and rescue missions, wildlife interactions from game wardens around the country and around the world. When I retired, I realized I couldn't let go of that legacy, but rather wanted to share the passion, the commitment, and the stories of those men and women that call themselves Game Wardens. This is Game Warden, Wayne Saunders, 